Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borodale. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the beautiful lands wherever you're listening. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who's been impacted by suicide, the pain it can bring to our lives, and the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. Today, I'm talking with Chukamika Chukes Maxwell. Chukes is the founder of Action to Prevent Suicide, CIC, a Devon-based nonprofit dedicated to raising funds for community-based programs focused on suicide prevention. Born in London to African and Caribbean parents, Chukes' family emigrated back to Nigeria in 1965, but he was then evacuated to the UK in 1967 as a refugee from the Biafran Civil War. He has also lived in Jamaica and Belize. Chooks has had a very eclectic working life, from training in the hotel industry after school to opening an award-winning delicatessen and later his own catering company, then retraining as a holistic deep tissue massage therapist and later as a registered social worker. A part-time lecturer at the University of Plymouth, Chooks is now also a suicide prevention trainer specialising in Living Works programs Assist and Safe Talk. Warm welcome to you, Chooks. Good morning. And it is a warm welcome because it's your summer and my winter, isn't it? It is. It is. Thank you so much for getting up early to talk to me today. No worries. So you've worn a lot of hats. Well, you wear a lot of hats still currently when it comes to mental health and suicide prevention, working with young people in schools, workplaces, community training in the UK, but also around the world. And I think what our listeners would love to hear your thoughts on today is how best to engage diverse communities in suicide prevention. So one of the projects you've worked on over the years was the Delivering Race Equality in Mental Health Care program that aimed at tackling inequalities and improved mental health services for people from black and minority ethnic communities. Would you mind telling us a bit about that work and your reflections since then? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very similar to what we've experienced in COVID, actually, because People from ethnic minorities, as we are known in this country, just as in America, the Native Americans are seen as that, uh, suffered disproportionately with mental health and suicide and COVID, as you've seen in this country, people from Black and Asian minority ethnic now is a new phrase now compared with what it was before, suffer more from coercive mental health controls. And unfortunately, well before George Floyd, people had actually died by being restrained in mental health services. So back in about 2005, after a case of a gentleman who died in custody called Ricky Bennett, the government decided to address the inequalities in mental health and look at the Delivering Race Equality Program. It was a very laudable um, reality to look at. However, if you think back where we are now, you know, 10 years on or 15 years on, 
there was a very different energy in the country at the time. And um, it was a political target, but the political change didn't really manifest as best as it could, as evidenced by all the demonstrations around the world with George Floyd. So still, that problem is still there because people from black and ethnic minority cultures are still overrepresented in the criminal justice system. They're also overrepresented in the mental health system. When it comes to suicide now, their data is not collected in the same way. So we don't know because the census stopped in 2010 to look at people who were in mental health. So we worked at a community development level, again, to try and give people the voice. So oftentimes we were told it was racism, not mental health. And our discussion and our argument was that actually racism does create mental ill health. Yeah, just like racism could cause suicide ideation. So at one level, it feels like we've come full circle in 2020 with COVID and the Black Lives Matter movement to really address this again. And I feel that very strongly what we need is as each culture takes responsibility with the support of the wider supposed culture, because no one's really ever in the majority, even though they think they are, we can address these things. When you talk about different cultures taking the lead in suicide prevention in their particular culture or community, what does that look like? I know we've talked previously about the focus on peer support and peer workers and training up people from within communities to then train their community members. What is the benefit there in terms of building trust and rapport of the peer support from within your own cultural community? Yeah, before we even get to that, I think one of the things is that all the research shows, no matter what you're working in, in terms of the health and outcomes of people, it's the quality and the power of the relationship. So when we start from that premise, it is really important to find people who already have that relationship. Very often, we might be in situations where the supposed expert comes in to the area and says, oh, we're going to teach you this or do this. That's, that's good too. But it definitely is important to empower people from within that given community, not necessarily to indoctrinate them with our beliefs, but um, give them what we know, which might be a universal understanding, like with suicide, it's a universal understanding, but allow people to explain certain words that might not translate the same way or certain understandings of how there's a cultural belief which might be creating more of the problem or might be a solution. So I think that's very important to acknowledge and have that degree of humility when we're addressing people. And for me, it's great because it gives me an opportunity to, especially since lockdown and to, with the internet, I'm talking to you in Australia and I'm in England. I mean, so this has been happening a lot more. I've talked to people all over the world, which I never really planned to do as such. What are some of the examples of people that you've spoken to around the world in relation to the suicide prevention training in trying to better understand the cultural beliefs and behaviours and the underlying sense of trust and rapport, as you said, to understand where people are coming from? Yeah, I think we have seen in the last sort of years an explosion of mental ill health issues in society. And we were just talking before we started, weren't we, about we're burning the candle at both ends. Language like that is really interesting. And I was saying as well, Christmas time, we should really be slowing down, but we're like getting faster. So it's really, really important, I think, to really acknowledge how the circle of life or how different cultures view life. And I think for me, we've almost got a Western disease of busyness and that can go really intense into other cultures which are made to feel that they have to serve the busyness of the minority of people who control 
business and everything else, you know. So for me, lockdown has given us a massive opportunity to, even with the suffering, to look at life again and go, do we really want to be on this hamster wheel? So in many cultures, you flow in Aboriginal cultures. When I say Aboriginal, I'm just, just meaning Australian Aboriginal. I'm talking about universally Aboriginal around the planet. Many cultures flow with the seasons, with the times, which is very counterintuitive to a very industrialised, we've got to get this done, get crops in quickly, all of that society. And it's made us all slaves at one level. And it's like, we don't recognise that. So, And then, so as a black person, you might have to scream louder because you've already got that in your legacy. But I think there's no awakening in humanity now that can feel that we need to change. And so that also makes us recognize our universality and our togetherness. And even though we might have separate beliefs, I remember bringing a, an Aboriginal lady to Stonehenge in England from Australia. And she could tell me exactly what Stonehenge was from that universal understanding. I was like blown away. So that is the thing that, yes, with the internet, we're very close together, but actually we're much closer together at times. So sometimes the cultural beliefs have come about by a small minority of powerful people separating people into a belief system rather than acknowledging a belief system. And when you're seemingly up against this big system that you can't seem to change, you might lose faith, might lose hope, and then just go, I just want to go, I just want to leave. So this, I think, is something that we need to highlight when working across cultures to understand historically where some nations or some countries have been, but also where we all potentially could go and are going. Absolutely. And taking the time to understand that because it takes time and conversation and trust, right? Yeah, definitely. So are there any examples you can share in relation to how you've actually worked to build that trust and sense of rapport with people of either some similar backgrounds to yourself or different cultures? So I know that you were talking to me about some work you've done with Nigeria and Jamaica, Belize. So what I've done, and this is really due to living works, actually, I managed to go out to the summit back in Atlanta years ago, where I met trainers from all over the world. And I suddenly realized how big the scale of suicide was in the world. And then last year, or I think, yes, I was in Derry for the International Suicide Prevention Alliance. And so what I've managed to reflect on is some of the countries I've lived in or some of the the issues that happened in my life, which at one level seemed traumatic, and they were at the time. For me, linking in with Nigeria is more like a, a healing for me as well, because of the civil war. So that story is an interesting story, because I came over to, as I say, Atlanta, to the Living Work Summit. And then I was staying with a friend in Upper State, New York. And um, he was a Buddhist, and we were going to go to the Karmapa Temple. Karmapa is one of the top Buddhist teachers. And there was a, a temple just outside Woodstock. So we drove all the way to Woodstock to find this temple and deliver a tool, which is from the Buddha of this age, who makes healing tools a bit like this. Healing tools is called a Vajra. So we went to deliver that. And as I came out, I think I was wearing a suicide prevention T-shirt. And this chap said to me, wow, suicide prevention. He said, I know a person in Nigeria who's really into suicide prevention. He's a psychiatrist and I'll introduce you. He's called Damalola Mustafa. And so he introduced me. And then... I got on the phone through WhatsApp and emails, and then he's, he introduced me to someone called Victor Hugo. And even though we haven't actually managed to pull off anything yet, he's an organization called Mentally Aware Nigeria Initiative, 
who is one of the biggest youth and mental health organizations in Nigeria. So we've talked tentatively just before lockdown as well about you know, rolling out suicide prevention in Nigeria. So what my aspiration is with Nigeria and other places is to first, before it was there was no start, so the online courses, to initially start with given start and then to take some qualified trainers to go to Nigeria or to go to different countries and train people in safe talk. And then as they've trained in safe talk, I was actually talking to someone the other day who did something in Hungary. And she said to me, what they actually did was rather than do safe talk, they went in with a cyst. So we might review that. And then you get the best people who really loved it and worked with it for maybe up to a year or so, and then go back and train the local people. Because then that's where the essence really takes place. And if you think about this, it's taken me already two and a half, three years just having certain phone calls, certain WhatsApp messages, certain LinkedIn, certain things I've been invited in. So I don't see it so much as working for or, or trying to promote. It's almost like a network of friendship, which then enables us to respond, to do the work. Because suddenly, it's almost like magic happens. You know, I think of a country, I, I think I said to you, I've employed some interns, and suddenly I've got interns from Portugal, Tanzania, Romania, and these are countries that I'm now starting to have conversations, but also in some of those countries, I've got connections, family, Jamaica, Nigeria. So this feels a really appropriate way, rather than just going on holiday to sun myself, to really go back in a form of service to help with suicide. And again, sorry, one more thing is that in Nigeria, suicide is still an illegal act like it was in this country. So the way in which we approach that and the way in which people are starting to approach that the government is to decriminalize that, but also to really make sure we can compassionately care for people who are struggling. And that'd be really interesting as to how the language that you use and how you frame the training, if it's come from being that illegal act and you still uh, will be working through all of those beliefs and behaviours and attitudes to turn that around into compassionate care. But how cool is that, that you go from Buddhist temple near Woodstock wearing a suicide prevention T-shirt run into someone who knows someone from Nigeria who is working in the same space and now be in a position where you can actually be talking about doing this in practice. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One little trick there is my name, Chukameka, means thank God. And so for me, I, I do believe in God. And it's not just a big guy in the sky with a white beard. It's more that energy that moves us all. And the more I let go, the better it gets. The more I think I'm in control, the worse it gets. And I mean that in a jovial, but also real way, because before COVID, I wrote this incredible business plan and then COVID happened. So we've had to turn around and as I've let go and been still, things have happened. So I do think things happen through us rather than me taking all the credit <laughs> yeah, exactly. at times. And so it's like that. And when I look back, I start to see how it's happened. But you know, it's almost like you wouldn't believe it. You know, it's like, even meeting you or anyone is just, yes, it's just really quite nice. Because before you called me, I was literally just having these calls about different cultures, you know, whereas I'd only had Nigeria and Jamaica in my mind before, and maybe Tanzania and Kenya. But, you know, there were these things happening. Not thinking that you'd be off to Hungary and Romania and wherever else you've got connections. Yeah. yeah. And what's nice about now, because literally the woman I'm talking to in Romania said to me, um, Again, listen how this happened. So I think I shared with you that it came through another organization. And then she was like, I want to do this in Romania. 
And I just recruited an intern to work with. And I say to them, work with, not work for me, because I don't like that idea, but work with me. And then I met this woman from Romania. And then even last night, a friend of mine writes on Facebook, my wife and I are going to build an eco house in Romania and we're offering a course. So I said, oh, I'm just, and later on today, I'm going to be speaking to this lady about suicide prevention in Romania. All of this has happened within two weeks. Yeah? And then, again, what we have to acknowledge is Romania was a communist country. We had dictators. The church is still orthodoxly powerful. So all these things are the cultural understandings we have to understand how we get in and break down the stigma and the taboo that's been in them for many, many years. What a coincidence to have the eco house could lead you into that world. That's fantastic. As well as these other ladies. So suddenly the connections, and we were just saying we have to create an association. So we're going to simply call it again, Suicide Safer Romania, and just go for it. Beautiful. I love that, that you could write your business plan ahead of COVID. That basically ends up scrap paper, but you're doing all of these things that have just come to you through more connection, actually, ironically enough, through COVID, connecting with different people in different ways and all of these things coming together at a time that seems right for those different countries, different communities and conversations. It's great. So I love that we can reinforce to our listeners the importance of community-led suicide prevention and really understanding the history, training up local people to be doing training, really being guided by that context. But what about mental health professionals who may be around people of different cultures? So one of the things, I mean, we have a lot of growth in speak around compassion now in mental health, healing circle work. So when you think again, back in Aboriginal cultures, sitting around the fire talking, sharing stories, community healing, rather than the one individual that's coming in to do the healing. The spirit of Ubuntu in Africa, where we were, you know, people might surround a person and sing to a person. I'm not saying it's all perfect, but again, in the West or even within spiritual understandings, that Christ consciousness, that Buddha nature, that energy of being kind, I think it's needed across the whole system because you know, if we think that mental health, firstly, is separate to physical health, <clears throat> that's not too good. And so we have this specialist mental health service, which we might not actually be looking at a holistic person. So I've always said, in my understanding, that everything comes from the mind. So if you look at the teachings of Buddha and Jesus, and even the Buddha of this age and now, we'll always talk about purifying our mind, purifying our thoughts. So if I come in as a professional saying, this person has depression, that might be true. However, if there's no word for depression, as there are in some cultures, what do you call it? You know, some cultures I've told, and this is a good one for us Westerners, thinking too much. Yeah? So again, you know, or talking too much or pain in my heart, because these things are lifestyle choices, which we all have and we all make. So sometimes I think, the people in these professions need it more than the people in the community. It's almost like through preventative medicine and through the internet, through understanding, and the mantra that we use in Living Works, don't we, is that all in the suicide prevention world is suicide prevention is everybody's business. But let's take out the word business, but it's, I would like to think responsibility. And I'm going to change that actually as I'm thinking, talking to you, because it's the ability to respond. And you don't need an ology to respond from your heart but it's really hard to be in your heart all the time. And that's what suicide prevention has enabled me to start to understand. 
because I don't know when the phone's going to ring and someone's going to be you know, really upset and I'm not a crisis line, but I can respond or not. So for me, the challenge is how we don't over-professionalize suicide prevention, but we really acknowledge as the founders of Living Works and many other people that this can be done by anybody, but we have to take notice. And COVID has shown me as well, even though I'm not fully doing this now, I have to really work hard to understand some of the causes of why people want to take their life. So if you are hungry, we need to feed them. All these things of kindness, which should be in the state, but it's these realities now I think we need to look at as well. So the mental health worker is part of that because they could be burnt out, they could be struggling with their own thoughts of suicide, they could have all this, but yet they're supposed to be a professional. So for me, I like to look at, we're all suffering to a certain degree, but it doesn't have to be that way. So I try and treat everyone and it, it sounds quite quaint and stuff, but I try to treat people the same in terms of knowing potentially anyone could have those thoughts and not want to be here. So the degree of friendliness. And I, and I think as well, there's a real pressure on oneself to, to, to acknowledge that in oneself you know, and help each other. So I think the mental health profession needs that support to let go in over here. You might have heard of something called Open Dialogue, which comes from Finland, which is a way of working. And I think if we can work like that more, in a more sort of community circles of support reality. We'll have all these circles of support and networks around the world and in our communities, and people feel safe to respond rather than thinking they have to just send them to a hospital and be locked up. I think that was a bit of a roundabout way of me saying we need to look after each other as well, whether we're in the mental health system or not. We totally do. I think also this is what this series is about, creating a better cultural understanding and I guess realising that suicide is a complex human behaviour and we all bring into every interaction what our context is, whether it's mental health professionals and others alike. We're all just human beings, with, as you say, with a degree of our own suffering that we bring into every interaction. In every episode, I've asked people what gives them hope when they look at suicide and its prevention, because it's a tough area to be working in. It's very personal, as you say, and people are going through tough times. So what gives you hope when you think about the work that you're doing and suicide? So you might have heard me say a couple of times or allude to a couple of times that the Buddha of this age is on the planet and externalizing. And so for me, there was one part of my life there, which I was a probationary Christian Buddhist monk. And so it's not a religious thing, even though you one would say, well, it's a religion. Isn't it Buddhism or Christianity? No. When the avatar comes forth in humanity, that becomes an incredible opportunity for us all. And what's been interesting is over the last few years, the Buddha has been talking about suicide. And so what that has done is suddenly governments and suddenly places have woken up to this reality. I mean, it's still high up on the list, a million people a year, roughly, isn't it? But COVID, look at what's happened in COVID. But if you think about something like how many people die of heart disease? So for me, what gives me hope is as we heal our hearts, as we really know that we can do this, and that's many things, you know, and we lose the worry because that's what really gets in the way for me. It's like when the phone goes and the mother's there worrying, we spend more of our time talking and sharing so the mother feels calm. Because I've always said that worry has been, no, I've not always said, but I've understood it at one level, that worry is like a virus. So imagine what you just said there can hope be a virus, and a virus in a positive sense. So for me, I've also, I'm doing a project later on, which is called Beyond Hope Life. And that's why I like as well, Living Works. So Living Works, whereas before I came into suicide prevention, and even most of my life, I've been quite sad, quite miserable. And it's almost like, 
I know dying works, but living works is really important. And so that's what gives me my hope. And then seeing the amount of people that are slowly waking up to be able to help and support. So it feels really positive. Now, whether I personally are going to be there or it's like a big organization, not sure, but it's like, it's more about the connections and the relationships that always give us the opportunity to share what I've just shared with you about Buddha being on the planet, but also the healing tools and the way in which collective consciousness is going to move us away from being more Trump-like to being maybe more Biden-like. So, oh, happy day. That's what gives me hope. <laughs> That's great. Well, it, what gives me hope is hearing about all these beautiful connections that you're making around the world with different communities and cultures. It's just so inspiring to hear about that. And I know that you've got a lot of different ideas and projects that you're working on. Where can people find out more about the work that you do and what would you like to tell us a little bit more about? So we've got an aspiration to have a retreat, a centre based on befriending. We have a place in England here called Maytree, and Maytree is like a suicide place where people who are feeling suicidal can go and be befriended. So we're looking to have that in a farm. So we set up a charity called Goodwill in Action to Prevent Suicide. And in the early stages, we've got an idea of a farm we would like to buy. And then on that farm as well, we want to sort of have sustainable living as well. Good food, enabling people to fast, enable people to eat well, to regenerate themselves. Because again, that's the other thing. Regenerative medicine is really, really important for our hope in the future. And then also our activity with Action to Prevent Suicide. So www.actiontopreventsuicide.org. You can look. So we try and have categories of workers for the community, young people, workplaces, and international. So those are just the way in which we sort of divide the work up. But in that, it really is one big community. And so it's just trying to respond. We've just recently been given some funds to look specifically and work with BAME people, as well as LGBTQ people, and then some other funds to work with bereaved young people to suicide, as well as the project I'm saying, Beyond Hope Life. And that site is for people who've been bereaved by suicide. And that's where you could put a memorial of people who've been bereaved by suicide and have something on their website. And so we're hoping to spread that through other countries and the relationships are built up through Living Works people, actually. So hopefully these are some of the projects. But everything in my mind is always in God's own time, not Chukamika's time. So patience is the virtue that I sometimes struggle with. Because when you look back, actually, after you've been patient, you go, wow, that happened really quick. But whilst you're waiting, whilst you're trying, it doesn't feel like it. So for me, it's patience and to really recognize that things are moving in the right direction, even though I might not exactly know what's going to happen next. I think that is a lesson I and many of the listeners could definitely take to heart. Even if you look at what's happened this year, you know, we say that, you know, can't wait to get to the end of this year. And as you said, right at the start of this interview, burning the candle at both ends, everyone's exhausted, but actually look at how many things have also been achieved this year and how quickly the year's gone. So I love that, being patient, but also recognising that once you do actually get to the stage of that achievement, looking back and thinking how fast that happened is amazing. And maybe your friends in Romania who are building the eco house could help you on the farm. That would be a beautiful full circle. Yeah, that would be great. Well, it's funny, actually, <laughs> because all of this does come out of a place that I used to inhabit in the southwest here, where so many relationships have come out of that. You know, it's like, like I say, when you look back and see, oh, I was there and I met that person. It's just like a miracle each time. It's a miracle of life, really. It's awesome, as they say in the States. <laughs> 
Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's been awesome talking to you, Chooks. Thank you so much for your time and for the reflections and insights that you've shared with us today. And good luck with all of your projects and coming into the new year. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review, and most importantly, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.